0: Well, I said a moment ago that um, we are in the holiday uh, season, um, and so some of you are thinking, no, 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 that comes, you know, Thursday. Thanksgiving is the beginning uh, of it and whatnot. I was thinking how when I was a youth pastor, sometimes I would, uh, with, with the students, pose, you know, a problem or an issue and have two answers that I wanted the students to, to pick, and then I would make them get up and move across the room. Okay, who thinks this is the answer? Who thinks, you know, this is it? And I was tempted this morning. We won't do it, um, but like... You know, should we, is it okay to decorate for Christmas before Thanksgiving, be on this side, or if you think it should be after, you know, go on this side, but again, we don't want to, we don't want to divide families, <laughs> and some of you are laughing because you know in my own home there's some division a little bit over, over that, uh, but it, it's, it's Christmas time in our house to be sure, um, but it's the holiday season, whether you've decorated or not, right? Thanksgiving is this weekend, and um, kids are off school this week and some different things. But everywhere we go, whether we go to Costco, whether we go to the mall, whether we just go to a regular grocery store, um, if we're online, on Amazon, everywhere, someone, a company, a store, whatever, they're trying to convince us that our fundamental problem is that we don't have whatever they are wanting us to have. Costco wants us to get pumpkin pies. And other things. And we, we know this. We we know that's just the marketing, that's that's the, you know the time of year we live in. And it's really all the all the time, but especially it can feel that way this time of year. But but that's not our fundamental problem. That's not. The truth is, church, our our fundamental problem it has nothing to do with what we have and don't have. Now we have needs, to be sure. Um, but that 's not the fundamental core problem. The fundamental problem is our sin um, and that 's a, a reality that we know by experience it 's reality if we've, if you 've been a christian and you 've studied the scriptures it 's reality that that is present um, that that is our ultimate problem we We fall short of god 's glory we, we sin. V- in, in willful ways, we sin in ways we don't even realize we're sinning, and, and we, we have to remedy that. But even there is a problem. We can't remedy it. Only God can make that remedy. And we are in Romans, and just briefly, I want to catch us up. Maybe you've missed a few sermons. We actually took a little break for a couple of weeks, and we re-engaged Romans last week. But whether you've been here, whether you've missed a couple, just briefly, uh, if you look at the screen... Um, the Apostle Paul, he's introduced everything he's going to talk about in this letter and in a traditional way of his day. He gave a greeting, verses 1 to 7, introduced who he was and what it meant for him to be an apostle. Then there's a thanksgiving section where, again, he thanked God for the Roman church and for, for again, what he was, God was doing in them and how their fame was known throughout the whole world. And then what you see in yellow is, he got to the theme of the letter, this long letter he's writing to this church he's never been to. He gets to these two verses, and, and they are the theme, they're the hinge that takes him out of the introduction into the heart of the letter. Romans one, sixteen and seventeen, you see it on the screen. He writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The Apostle Paul is not ashamed of. The gospel. Remember the good news, that, that declaration, that announcement, what we've been looking at each week. This is from JD Greer. He says, The gospel announcement. Remember, gospel just means good news, not good advice, but it's news. And it is this announcement that really is shorthand for the essential Christian message. It's the, the heart of Christianity. And then JD goes on to write, what is that? And, and Romans will from chapter 1 through 16 summarize in this way, that God, in an act of grace, sent his son to earth as this man so that through Jesus' life, death, and ultimately his resurrection, he could rescue us. That's, that's the sin problem. <laughs> rescue us from what, what is our result of our sin that he would reign as our king and then that he would lead us into the eternal full life we were created to enjoy. I love that last part because sometimes we think eternal life is, is only heaven. Like I'm saved for eternal life. But, but in the scriptures actually eternal life is meant to be experienced now. We, we start to taste what it will be like one day when we reign with him and, and, and we're together with him once he's returned. So eternal life is, is even now to be experienced, and it's a full life, an eternal kind of life. And we were created to enjoy it. And so the gospel has to happen for, for this to be the case. So again, back to Romans 1 with a couple of annotations, or one sixteen and 17. Paul says, "I'm not ashamed." And right above this, he talked about how he was so excited to go to Rome. He had never been there, but he heard about them. But he's going to write to them, and he longed to get there and share with them. But he says, "I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not embarrassed about it." That is the gospel. This the shorthand declaration of all that God has done in the person of Jesus. For it, that is the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. It's it's this this event, this thing that happened where his son lived the perfect life that we don't live and can't live, that his son went to the cross to die for us and, and, and take the punishment that we deserve in our place and then die, but then rise. And, and and all of that, his life, his death, his resurrection, it, the announcement of what happened is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's an announcement to the Jew first because, of course, Jesus is is the Jewish promised Messiah and, and, and the fulfillment of Judaism. And then so it's to them first, but then it's for the world, for the Gentiles, for the Greeks, Paul says. For in it, again, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written and he here quotes habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 the righteous shall live by faith that is those who have a right standing with god by faith will experience eternal life see this righteousness of god is a statement about who he is he's righteous but it's also a statement of of what he gives so righteousness is to be received we can't earn it we can't pay for it we can't do enough churchy things, or as Luther said, Martin Luther, can't do enough monkery to get that righteousness. It has to come from outside. John Stott, a former pastor and commentator who's now with the Lord, he put it like this The righteousness of God is God's just I'm sorry, start over. The righteousness of God is God's just justification of the unjust his righteous way of pronouncing the unrighteous as righteous in which he both demonstrates his righteousness and gives righteousness to us. He has done it through Christ, the righteous one who died for the unrighteous as Paul will explain later in Romans. And he does it by faith when we put our trust in him and cry to him, for mercy, the gospel reveals God's righteous way of righteousing the unrighteous. So, the righteousness of God refers not only to what God is when He justifies you, but also to what God gives you when He justifies you. God is both, as Romans three twenty six will say, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So through Romans, we talked about it uh, once and we'll see these words come up more and more, but the words just and righteous, this word family in the Greek, the Apostle Paul decided God inspired him to write this way, but he's going to use these words. And and again, they they relate to each other for God to be just and the justifier means he's the righteous one who makes righteous. And so there's some understanding of what those words are. And so here's this quote, and I just think it's so good. God righteously righteouses the unrighteous. Now, we don't talk a lot about being unrighteous, that's kind of a Romans word. But this is what God is doing through the gospel. God is, as the righteous one, righteously righteousing the unrighteous. And that brings us back to the outline. Number two, you don't need to see number one anymore. It's real small. Don't worry about it. As we have moved out of the introduction and out of the theme now, we've been for a couple of weeks in number two of an outline of Romans. This universal need for righteousness. And it's God's righteousness. And again, that's back to where we started, our fundamental problem. And what Paul's arguing is, all the way from 118 through 320, and it's almost like he takes this detour, it's not almost, he does. He's, he's given the theme of the gospel, and in 321, he'll return there, but in order to, to highlight this good news, he, he has to give the bad news. Of the world's unrighteousness. And he's, he's writing from, you know, wide to narrow. He talks about the universal need, everyone's need for this external righteousness. But, but in 118 through the end of the chapter, he's going to zero in on Gentiles. And that's where we will be again this morning, one more time. And then in chapter 2, he'll make a shift and focus on the Jews. And then he will circle back to everyone again. So it's everyone in need of this. Everyone's got a sin problem. The, the Gentiles definitely do, Paul says, and, and the Jews do too. It's not one or the other. It's everyone, and he'll universalize it. And then Romans 3.21, he will come back to the, the good news yet again. So once more, our fundamental problem is our sin. We are unrighteous. And we need this external alien righteousness. How how do we get it? What do we do? That's that's Romans. That's where we're at. So Paul, last week, began to talk about idolatry. At least that's what we looked at last week. We were in verses 21 through 23 of chapter 1. And again, he, he began to point out that the Gentiles, well, let me read verse 23 to summarize what happened. He says, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images that resemble mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. Idolatry. Um, Paul writing as he was Jewish and writing from his place in history, he goes on a polemic uh, as a lot of other Jewish writers did to say, oh, the Gentile world, they're a bunch of idolaters. And and again, he doesn't have any one person in mind. He's just kind of making a big, broad, general point. The Gentile world, they're full of idolatry. Of course, the the truth, and we talked about this, God's people were idolaters too, right? When Moses was on the mountain and God's people, even though they were just rescued, they got worried and concerned. Where's Moses, our leader? We need a golden calf. They needed an idol. And so it's not just Gentiles, but... Principally, the Gentile world, they make idols. But like we noted last week, it can be making something like the image of a mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things, but it's also putting good things in, in a place they ought not be, good things that become the most important things in our life. And it can be work, it can be family, it can be you know success, it can be food. I talked about in my own life, there was a time when food was an idol in my life, and that can still be a temptation. And so anything that we go to ahead of God becomes this idol, a functional savior. And so um, that was the broad thing, this exchange, this idolatry, whether it's internal, which is probably what most of us experience. Um, If any of you do struggle with making statues and having some worship to them, let me know. (laughs) and then we'll talk about that, but probably most of us, our idols are our heart. Like the reformers said, the heart is an idol factory. There's just always something that we want to put in front of God. And so verse 18, this is why the wrath of God is revealed, right? we, We are idol makers. We exchange God's glory for made things and and so God's wrath is being revealed. And we're gonna talk about that phrase a bit more even today as we, as we press on. But see, that, that word, at, at verse 18, for, a little word, for the wrath, wrath of God, right? It's there to talk about why we need the gospel, why we need that righteousness that was right before. This righteousness from God, by faith, we need it for, because of all this idolatry, and again, it's not just the Gentile world generally, although that's what Paul was saying to his first audience, but, but we know these things in our heart as well. That brings us as a long introduction to our text for today. We're going to be this morning in Romans 1: 124 through 32. And, and let me just say, this passage we'll see is an inference from 18 to 23. So we, we've looked at 18 to 23 over a couple different weeks. But now we get an inference. Another reason, in other words, it's, it's built on to what Paul has kind of been summarizing. And we're going to see the repetition of this phrase God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up three different times. What did God give them up to? Well, the short answer is sin and and the consequences. If the Gentile world is going to exchange the glory of God, even even the general revelation of what can be known about God and and repress it and hold it back, then then there's a sense that God is going to give people up to what they've already chosen. All is an expression of, of his wrath that is being revealed now. Now, It's not quite the same as the wrath that will come one day in the future. Paul will talk about that in Romans 2 and 5 and 9. It's also not the same as, interestingly, the wrath of God that God carries out through government. In Romans 13, long way into the future, we'll see that the wrath of God gets mitigated through the authorities. But this is a a wrath right now where, where the world, and this has been going on for 2,000 plus years, is experiencing the consequences of people rejecting God, suppressing the truth, and saying, I want to live my way. And, and, and God gives them over to, gives them up. And we'll, we'll talk about that more. But let me read our passage. Let's hear God's word, and then we'll look into it. Romans 1, 24 through 32. Therefore, God gave them up, In the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing we see as we move into This text, which I'm simply calling the results of idolatry. I told you our our passage is an inference from 21 to 23. So Paul has brought up idolatry as this exchange that has happened. And this idolatry has some results. And what we see outlined in our passage is the results of idolatry are sexual sins, specifically, and many other sins. In fact, at the end, there, what you just heard me read, he lists 21 things. 21! Kind of bunched into three groups. And let me just comment on that briefly. Um, it's a vice list. That's what scholars call those kind of lists. They're elsewhere in the Bible as well. Paul wasn't sitting there trying to be exhaustive, although, 21. Not bad. How many could you and I come up with? Vice lists. The point is to say, idolatry has some results. And and one of the big ones is sexual sins, which Paul highlights. But then he goes on to list 21 other things. Just to make it clear, it's not just one thing, but it's a lot. Again, the Gentile world, the world, the universal truth is, everyone in one way or the other is unrighteous before God and needs this alien external righteousness. And that's what Paul is talking about. So first... Verses 24 and 25, the first gave them up language. Again, he does this three different times throughout the text. God gave them up to what ESV translates as impurity. Verse 24 and 25, therefore, God gave them up. Other translations say hand over, delivered them over, gave them over, okay, God handed them over, delivered them over, gave them over, gave them up. And the first thing he highlights is into or in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to impurity. This language of God giving up, um, it it can sound on the surface like God is just saying, up, I'm done, I'm backing off, I'm giving up. And some want to say that. That that's kinda of like God just pushing a boat and saying, There you go. You know you're doing your thing, there you go. Um but even in that illustration, God is the one pushing the boat along. These these lusts, these desires. Notice he says, the lusts of their hearts. So God is giving people over to what they are already inclined to do. And he 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 says, again, the word we have is impurity, um, and that's not just a general impurity. Um, it, it is speaking of, of a sexual impurity, a sexual sin. This is one result of idolatry. It leads to sexual sin kind of in a general way. And then at the end of verse 24, Paul there kind of explains that. This this impurity, this sexual impurity is a dishonoring of bodies among themselves. When When we sin sexually, again, in ways contrary to what God's word says, we, we, part of it is, can be described as a dishonoring of the body that God made. And there again, look at 25, the idolatry comes right out. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And then again, a statement about the creator. He's blessed forever. And Paul says, amen to that, so be it. This is, this is an idea that is found throughout the Old Testament, God giving his people over to their sins. Um, and, and so it's not an unknown way of thinking to Paul, to the Jewish people. Um, and yet again, the meaning of God giving up isn't simply a letting go, letting them do what they want and, and not having a part to play. The meaning demands that we give God, one writer puts an active role in the, as the initiator of this process. God is not simply letting the boat go. He gives it a push downstream. Like a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment that the prisoner's crime has earned, God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. If if the world is going to suppress the truth about God, the natural revelation that he exists, which is what the earlier verses here have argued, then one way God is going to just say, you, you okay, you want it, there you go. And it's a terrible cycle. And people exchange the truth about God for, for things made, he says, uh, the, the creature, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And that could, again... Throw back to the idols, physical statues, or even serving the body, you know, worshiping the creature. And and a lot of sexual sin, it, it's about what, what people want for their, their bodies. Why did God give them up into this sin, to this impurity? Because again, they exchanged God's truth for a lie. They, I, their, their idolatry caused them to worship and serve what God created. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. And now here in verse 25, they exchanged the truth for a lie. Interesting, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, Paul writes there about how this church did a flip-flop of that. Hear this. Speaking of the Thessalonians, he writes, they report concerning us what kind of reception we had among you and how you Thessalonians, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So so, yeah, in a general way, Paul has in mind the Gentile world of his day. Very much so. And those people in Thessalonica that were converted, they turned from their idols and repented, came back in a way to God. They they flipped that around. But but this is what's going on. God is giving People up to impurity, to, to sexual sins. People saying, I, I'm going to suppress the truth and, and I'm going to serve the creature rather than the creator. And God says, okay, you're going to have it your way into this cycle of sin. And that's part of the wrath of God now. The, the, the havoc that creates, that's created in sexual sin is an expression of God's wrath now. Number two, God gave them up, he writes, secondly, to dishonorable passions. That's his summary for what he's gonna explain. Verse 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. So he said, first off, to impurity, but now he talks about dishonorable passions, And this, again, you can focus it more. This is a summary for illicit sexual passions and lusts. And then he gives an example. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The second illustration of how God gave them up as his wrath is being revealed is that people were given over to dishonorable passions, illicit sexual passions. And again, as a Jewish man, Paul would be familiar with the polemical Jewish writings of his day. And one of the things that the Jewish Polemical writers of his day highlighted about the Gentile world was their gross sexual immorality that, that they were aware of. Paul traveled the world. He had been to Rome, you know, kind of like we've been to Vegas. Right? He, he saw things. And, and the Jews of his day, they, they pointed out the rampant sin among the Gentile world. And, and again, it's a, biblically, Paul traces it back to idolatry. In the Wisdom of Solomon, this is some of the, an example of this Jewish polemical writing. Uh, The writer there says, The idea of making idols was the beginning of fornication, and the invention of them was the corruption of life. And so Paul is following in that genre of literature by highlighting one example of, again, what he calls dishonorable passions, and that is same sex sex. For Paul, coming out of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, Jew, not only was this Jewish polemical observation, but this is from what God has said. Same-sex sex is an example, biblically, of dishonorable passions. Paul says, God gave them up because they exchanged the true God for idols. And again, We come back to this. The essence of sin, of any kind, is idolatry. And and this consequential sin that Paul's highlighting is is sexual sin, which, again, has at its roots idolatry, exchanging truth for a lie, glory of the creator for the creation. And Paul describes same-sex lust as an act of what he writes, what we translate in the ESV, contrary to nature, and that simply means against God's design. It's a violation of God's created order. So in the Bible, in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, verse 4, is gonna speak of the marriage bed, how it's supposed to be held in honor. And here he's speaking of dishonorable things. And going back to Genesis Marriage, as God intended, was one man, one woman. So if there is same-sex sex, and first he lists women and women, and then men and men, Paul says this, this is a dishonorable thing. It's not how God intended marriage in the beginning. It's not an honorable way for marriage to be experienced. He says the due penalty of their error is Experienced. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. There Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous, see, here's these words, so the unrighteous, the, the non-justified, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to those who are made righteous by the gospel. Keep, keep that in mind. And then Paul says, and here's another vice list, First Corinthians 9, middle of verse 9, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, so that covers everything, any kind of sexual expression outside of what God intended in marriage between a man and a woman, any kind, adultery, fornication, anything general, nor idolaters, notice right there, he's quick to put idolatry, Then he gets specific, nor adulterers. Now he's going to start getting specific, right? General sexual immoral, idolatry, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers. So see, it's not just any one kind of sin, like at the end of our text where there's 21 things listed here. He lists a bunch, but he does name a couple of these that we're dealing with. He says, the unrighteous who, who live this way, practice these things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But verse 11 is a great, great verse. Especially the first in English, six words. And such were some of you were those things. You were unrighteous, and you lived and practiced. You were, but you were washed. An expression of the cleansing that comes through Christ. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the sword, excuse me, by the sword, by the spirit of our God. What keeps people out of experiencing the kingdom of God is is not being righteous. It's not specifically doing any one of those things because again, that's just a list. It's not meant to be everything. It's just a highlight of examples. But we need to be washed regardless of whatever sins we practice. But there in Romans 1, Paul highlights as an example of the Gentile world in his day The idolatry that leads to further sin, God giving them up because of an exchange. And he says, look, one of the examples is this contrary to nature, contrary to God's design in sex. It's a violation of created order for same-sex sexual practice. We'll come back to that in a moment. Then three, God gave them up. The third time he uses this phrase, to a debased mind. Turn to the person next to you and define the word debased. Just kidding. You don't need to do that. ESV translates this phrase, uh, a debased mind. Uh, it means a corrupt mind, a depraved mind, a worthless mind. Okay, now you know that's what debased means. And verses, I'll just read verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, and to do what ought not be done. And then he lists those 21 overlapping sins that I I read a moment ago. 21. And again, not trying to cover everything, but he covers a lot. And we won't go into those in detail. They're pretty self-explanatory. But my point today is, right, sometimes, friends, this passage in Romans 1 is treated as, but, but definitely felt to be uh, what, what some people call a, a club passage, uh, a, a passage to beat people up over certain things. And, and I think God, and through the Apostle Paul, is highlighting a lot of things, and he does drill down on sexual sin in general, impurity, and then even more specific, this this dishonoring and then he gets specific, yes, by naming same-sex sexual practice, but it's not meant to be a passage to be clubbed with or to use in that way. Again, this is why he goes on to say, look, there's all kinds of examples of, of God giving over as, as his wrath is revealed and as people reject God and suppress the truth. One of those ways is people do what ought not to be done with this debased mind. And then again, he lists this list of, of different things. Again, we will see Romans 12 quite a ways away. But one of the things that chapter has in verse 2 is this phrase, the renewing of our mind. See here, it's the mind that's, that's debased. It's the mind that, that is corrupt. And the only way the mind can get right is when the regeneration happens, the, the work of the Spirit. And, and so one of the things we need is a renewal of our mind. And that, that comes from God. God. So there's a logical sequence to the structure of this list. But again, just understand it as, as a vice list to say there's a lot of ways. The Gentile world, but let's be honest, I mean, maybe for you it's struggle with being boastful. Maybe for you it's the gossip thing. Um, maybe there's, you know, covetousness, heartless. There's a list there. And then verse 32, he says, though they know God's righteous decree, and that doesn't mean Paul thinks that they know like, the law and, and all of the stipulations. This is the Gentile world. But he's already said there's a general awareness that, that God exists. And there's, there's a moral awareness, right? The, the, the phrase I've used before, one of my professors used to say to help us think that people know that torturing babies for fun is wrong. It's, it's, it's a, that's just a given. You don't have to be a Christian to know that. It's, there's a general understanding of morality that, that people repress. And so he says, people know this, and that if you practice things, you die. Well, and then he has this, this is an indictment, and this is going to be a pivot into chapter two, which we'll get to next week. Not only do some people do these things, but give approval to those who practice them. It's almost as if Paul says, that's worse to, to, to give approval and say it's okay to, to live this way. Help us. Again, right? The big point, I think I have it. Uh, there's that statement again, in the gospel is the righteousness of God. the implication is we're unrighteous and we need external righteousness, and that's what ha- comes in 118 through verse 32. By the use of God gave them over, they exchanged. God gave them over because they're exchanging. Idolatry, idolatry, putting other things in front of God, and it leads and it leads to certain types of sins, including sexual sins. And and then Paul lists same sex, sex. And so I want to end this morning saying a little bit more about that. Um, I'm very indebted. I've mentioned this book a few times. I've quoted it already. This is J.D. Greer. This book is called Essential Christianity. Um, One of the sections in it, he calls an intermission, and it's an intermission about the Christian view of sexuality. And so I'm going to read from, but also interject some of my comments. But anything that's good, give J.D. the credit. If you don't like any of it, blame it on me. For a lot of people, Romans 1, the passage I read in 1 Corinthians, it's like a conversation stopper. They, they view that the Bible's sexual prescription, it's a defeater, right? That is, it's so outrageous that it just invalidates everything else. Like, if that's, if that's what Christianity is, then forget it. And so for a lot of people, the Bible's teaching on sexuality does that. Um, but before we we give into that, or, or if we struggle to think that way, let, let's let's just reason for a few moments. Um, J.D. offers three myths that our culture and far too often he writes churches have promoted, specifically about God's word and same sex sexuality, homosexual practice, um, and so these are myths that he. Re- deals with, and I want to read them. Number one, myth one, when it comes to homosexuality, there's only two choices, either affirmation or alienation. And J.D. says that's a myth. Many assume that when someone announces that they are gay, that the only options are to affirm or to alienate. And if we're not doing um, alienation, then we're doing the other one and vice versa. To not embrace someone's sexual choices is to be dismissive of them as a person. And J.D. says that's a myth. He says, but tragically, the church often has embraced that kind of a dichotomy. And so there's stories, maybe we've experienced it, we've seen it, heard it. Maybe it's anecdotal, but nonetheless, it's worth hearing. There are stories, heartbreaking stories, where parents reject a gay child Gay kids are bullied by supposed Christian friends at school. Churches ostracize those that struggle with same-sex attraction. And too often the church has treated LGBTQ+, and those in that community, more like an adversary, a political adversary that's to be vanquished, than a community to be loved and served. And, And again, let me just say this. In Romans 1, what Paul calls sin, what Paul calls unrighteousness is same-sex sex sex or the the practice of homosexuality, to to engage in it. That's not the same as to have temptation or to have a same-sex attraction. Okay, I'll come back to that, but to just have an attraction or to be tempted is not the same as engaging in it, and we need to keep that distinct. But back to this myth, is it just affirming or alienating? J.D. writes that Jesus took a different approach. Jesus spoke truth, no matter how unpopular or countercultural it was, but he befriended outsiders. He told people hard truth, but only as he drew them close to him. And unlike us, he didn't push away those with lifestyles that he disagreed with. He asked about their problems. He ate in their houses. He saw the outcast in his society as individuals, and this is key, made in the Father's image that we're to be valued and befriended and loved. So behind this myth is another one. It's a myth that says that our sexual orientation defines us. To be gay or straight is is to be our identity, to be the core of who we are. But the gospel, the scriptures teach something different, friends. Those aren't our identities. First and foremost, we are made in the image of God. That is our identity, every one of us, every person bears the imago Dei, the Latin phrase, the image of God. And so we can't reduce people or ourselves to our choices, to our desires. Every person is worthy of respect and compassion because of being made in God's image. All of us have rebelled against our creator. All of us have exchanged the truth at times and suppressed the truth and worshiped something created and put other things in front of God. Okay, We're all in this in one way or another. The third way that is the way of Jesus is a way of grace. And that way of grace, I think another way to put it, now this is some of my words, um, we, we should accept everyone. But that doesn't mean we have to approve. Acceptance doesn't need to equal approval. And I think we We confuse that. We we recognize that sin has corrupted all of us. And and so there's desires in all of us that that have been corrupted because of the fall. We used to say in our family, when you're mad at the struggle, blame Adam. And, And Paul will a little bit later in Romans. We all have a corruption. We're all made in God's image. The root problem is the same for all of us. It's sin. That's the root problem. We all need God's righteousness. So we need to accept people, to accept reality. And listen, in the four minutes I have left, we're not going to talk about everything we could talk about or should talk about or you want to talk about. And let me just say, let's get coffee. Let's talk. And if you are wrestling with things inside yourself, um, if you've got family, friends, if, if this is a big topic, let's talk. Let's reason together. But again, we do not need to affirm or alienate. We do not need to approve or alienate. We we can go the way of grace, which is to accept everyone made in God's image, everyone struggling, and and deal with reality, okay? But number two, myth number two, some believe that homosexuality is the worst sin. Again, it makes... Paul's list here, but it's just one of 20 plus things he mentions. And yeah, he singles it out. It was one, especially in his day as a Jewish man, looking at the Gentile world, it was one example of the paganism of his day, but it's not the worst sin. It's one fruit of a disordered heart. It's an example of doing what someone desires rather than what the Creator has desired, rather than what's according to nature, as Paul put it, as God designed. Of seeking to be who I want to be rather than who the Creator has declared me to be, or to pursue relationships differently than what God says to pursue. Gay relationships share the same root sin with all sin idolatry. That's what we're seeing, and rebellion substituting our desires for God's and usurping his authority with our will the roots are buried deep in the heart of all of us even if they flower in different ways and so that's what we see in Romans 1 there's 20 plus different things that idolatry leads to so homosexuality is not the worst sin it doesn't send anyone to hell I love this line from J.D. Here's how I know that homosexuality doesn't send a person to hell. Heterosexuality doesn't send you to heaven. What condemns any of us is refusing to allow Jesus to be the Lord of our lives, regardless of how that rebellion manifests itself in your sexual life, in what you do with your money, and what you do with authority, and how you talk to parents, or in how you talk to your neighbor. Rosaria Butterfield, if you don't know that name, she's a name you should know. Uh, She's written several books. She was a former practicing lesbian, a professor of literature and women's studies at Syracuse University in New York. And her first book is her conversion story. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And she says that Paul's letter to the Romans pushed her to look beyond her sexual desires to the root questions. Who in my life gets to declare what is good? Or... What is Lord in my life? Is it my desire or God's word? And she says that homosexuality is not the core of our rebellion against God. It's it's a desire to be God. It's a desire to call the shots, to declare what's good and what's evil. At the root, it's pride. Proud people always feel that they can live independently from God and from other people. Proud people feel entitled to do what they want when they want. Ultimately, she writes, we all come to Christ in the same way by repenting of, that is turning from our sin, our rebellion, and putting our trust and faith in the finished work of Jesus. Another writer you should know, Beckett Cook. He was a gay man working in Hollywood's entertainment industry when he became a Christian, in part, through Romans, studying Romans. And he explained for his entire life, people had been telling him, be true to yourself. But he writes, it's This, he says, the Bible says that the self is corrupted by sin. So why be true to that? The whole idea of this idea is is bound in the exaltation of self. It carries the implication of making yourself your own God, putting yourself and your desires on a pedestal and worshiping them. Being true to yourself is nothing short of idolatry. No, thank you, he writes. I don't want to be true to myself. I want to be true to God and his word. The gospel message is not let the gay become straight. It's let the dead become alive. Final myth he writes about being born with something makes it okay. And so often we hear this objection. Most gay people didn't choose to be gay, but at some point they discovered they were. And so it's wrong for God or the church to condemn someone for something they had no choice in. But it's not as simple as that. Um, There was a, pausing from this a second, years ago, exploration of a supposed gene maybe that inclined people and that's been shown to not be the case. But J.D. writes here, many impulses, instinctive to us, we recognize as wrong. Like, and then the first one he lists, I can raise my hand up, anger. Anger. I have an internal impulse to get angry. Or maybe it's greed or vengeance. He writes, if a shamed man feels that the only way he can restore his honor is through an honor killing, well, most of us would say that. That's an impulse that he should suppress, even if exacting vengeance feels right to him. And so the point is not to compare or to say that honor killing is the same as homosexuality. The point is just to say the mere possession of a desire doesn't make it right. The Bible never points us to look within for truth. There are some beautiful things because we're made in God's image. But Dr. or Mr. Hyde lives in there too. We're not born pure, we're all born under sin. And because of that, Jesus says we must all be born again. We all need to trust Christ. The Bible is an equal opportunity offender. And so Romans is clear. Homosexual practice, the choice, is a departure from God's design. But as we read in 1 Corinthians, so are a lot of other things. And it's it's the unrighteous who haven't been made righteous who choose to live in that again and again and and by choice stay there that that won't inherit the, the kingdom. But some were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed, and so forth. The counter-cultural sounding of this ethic, this sexual ethic, is hard to hear in our 21st century world. But if it's any consolation, the Bible's sexual ethic has often, almost in every culture, been offensive, but for different reasons. Ancient cultures were offended by the New Testament emphasis on monogamous marriage. They were offended by the equality of the sexes, men and women being equal. They were offended by Jesus' impulse to forgive and Female adulterer rather than throw rocks at her. We accept those as givens now, but the point is again, it's an equal opportunity offender. One more author you need to know Sam Alberry, a Christian writer and speaker who from his teenage years experienced and continues to experience same sex attraction, but as a follower of Jesus, he, he knows that's out of bounds. He writes in his book, here's a good title, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? Christian sexual ethics have been countercultural in every culture, and this is important to understand. It is easy to assume that Christian sexual ethics are old-fashioned, but that presumes some prior time in history when the Bible's teaching neatly matched our own sensibilities, but this has never been the case. The teaching of the Bible always ends up for teaching major aspects of any cultural's view of sex, of marriage, even while affirming other aspects. We might look at the Bible's teaching in horror, exclaiming, this is the 21st century. But it's not all that different from someone in the Roman Empire reading Romans, exclaiming, this is the first century, Paul. Though the reasons have varied from age to age, the Christian teaching on the issue has never been in vogue. JD says that the reason he does this intermission in this book um, is in part because, as C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, sexual ethics, they're not the center of the Christian message. Who's the center of the Christian message? Jesus! You've read your Lewis, or you know. Becoming a Christian means surrendering to his lordship. If he's Lord, you'll probably have a lot of things to rethink. So to use a metaphor I like, American football, it's okay to punt on this question for a while. Focus on the question of whether Jesus is Lord. If he is, you can work your way into this issue and others, and he'll help. The center of Christianity is is Jesus. Again, Jesus. Throughout his life, we see him demonstrating great sympathy for those caught in sexual sin. And in one incident I referred to, he was confronted by a group of religious leaders ready to stone an adulterous woman to death, John 8. He did not tell her that her sexual choices were nobody else's business, nor did he write her off as permanently disqualified. His most challenging words were not directed to her, but to those men who were judging her. And to her, he said words that he extends to all who are willing to come in surrender. Neither do I condemn you. Go from now and sin no more. Paul's words on same-sex sex against practicing homosexual behavior, it's hard in our day to hear. And we have friends, we have family, and maybe we have our own struggles and it's not meant to be a club. It's meant to say we're all, as one example, unrighteous. And we need Jesus. We all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. So in the gospel, we have the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In the gospel, we have the righteousness from God, external, received. For in the gospel, this righteousness is experienced by faith from faith. Because God Righteously righteous is the unrighteous. Again and again and again and again. He's our foundation, friends. Would you stand with me? I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing to end about our firm foundation in Christ. God, we confess this morning, if we're honest, we... We are idolaters one way or the other. There's always some temptation that we give into to put something else as more important than you. Our own way of doing something, our own understanding. Maybe we think we're more compassionate than you. Or again, people we care about and love and and this is hard to hear. Maybe again, we're dealing with stuff. But God, you are a God who. As the righteous one, you righteous the unrighteous because Jesus, you in the gospel fulfilled all righteousness and it's imputed to us when we trust in you. So help us live in right relation to you and help us love people as image bearers and not approve of what you don't approve of, God. Help us not do that. Help us not say things are okay that your word says aren't. Keep us from that help us love, help us accept, help us be full of grace like Jesus and journey with people and point them to you, our firm foundation, in Jesus' name.